You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again by giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. It is September 27th, 2021, 
episode 152 of season 3, 217 of this podcast. And I just read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, one of the things that led me to this passage is this idea of being given the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 18 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So I think it's fitting that we look at our calling, look at the way we do church, look at the way we do our relationships, look at the way we handle work situations, look at the way we handle our community, look at the way we handle ourselves and our home and our family and our children and our marriage in light of this language that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? To minister, to serve, we're serving. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. We are of our Father's business. To reconcile men to God, you have to have some awareness of the gospel. You have to be able to communicate that awareness. You have to earnestly desire that others understand what it is that you're communicating. That's it. We love God because he first loved us, and we love one another, and by so doing, men know that we are Christ's. We belong to Christ. We are one with Christ. The world will know that we are his disciples because we love one another. And so we find in that that we are reconciled with God, but not only with God, we're also reconciled with one another. And sometimes reconciliation is a messy business. No two ways about it. Someone has been hurt because someone else has, if you can believe it, sinned against them. You sin, I sin, we all sin. It is by God's grace in Christ that those who are found in Christ do not have their sins counted against them. And so how can we say being in that state of affairs, being in that reconciled condition towards God, that we refuse to be reconciled to our brother. The disciples ask Jesus at one point if their brother sins against them and they forgive him seven times. Is that enough? Is it enough to forgive your brother seven times when he sins against you? Jesus says no. Seventy times seven. Which is, for those keeping score at home, a lot. It's a lot of forgiveness. 
And that's not easy. But for the grace of God, we count everyone's sins against us and we keep a record. I was thinking today about something I've thought quite a lot about in my working life to date, and that is the journal that I keep for work. I keep this journal and I write down what it is that I'm working on and I write down what it is that I have going on. And if interruptions come up and extenuating circumstances keep me from being able to finish what it is that I had set about to do for the day, I try to make a note of that. And if someone asks me to do something else besides what was on my agenda for the day, and it seems very urgent and I have to put what it was that I was planning to do on the side line on the back burner, I try to make a note of that. Here's what the extenuating circumstance was. I was going to do this other thing, but then something came up and I did that other thing instead. And I keep these notes and I keep these notes in part because sometimes people in the midst of a lot going on will ask, particularly of someone in my position. And I know because I used to be on the other side of this oil and gas industry I've been working in for 10 years. Sometimes people in the midst of a lot going on, if they are operating, will say to someone who is trying to take care of the instrumentation, that guy didn't do his job because this isn't working the way that I expected it to. But ho, 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 I used to be an operator myself and I was privy to the conversations among operators, namely that the operators would put what they knew together and if they couldn't make sense of what was going on, they would suspect that the instrumentation was not working correctly. If this is not having the effect that I expect it to, the instrumentation must be wrong. The gauge must be incorrect. Have the instrumentation guy take a look at it. Well, the instrumentation guy comes out and he takes a look at it and he says, hey, you know what? Actually, sometimes this device is working correctly. And perhaps, no offense, you are not. <laughs> perhaps your understanding of the process that you are supposed to be operating is not doing as well as this instrument, which is in place, which is supposed to be monitoring a certain facet of the operation, temperature, pressure, level, for instance, composition, for instance, flow rate, for instance, status, open, closed, for instance. Sometimes our understanding of things is not all that it could be. And sometimes when we are busy and when we are afraid, we can look for scapegoats because we don't want to be the one left holding the hot potato without a seat when the music stops because we're playing musical chairs we're looking for someone else to be the bad guy because we can't bear the thought of having made a mistake. This is one of the ways in which capitalism arising in the West is very much dependent on the Christian worldview. And what I mean by that is this idea of reconciliation for those who have sinned against one another, who've been sinned against, 
is necessary for people to be able to extend a hand in good faith, trusting one another to some extent, and then the trust is broken. And what do you do when the trust is broken? An eye for an eye? You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, Jesus says. But I tell you, whoever slaps you on the one cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone asks you to go one mile for him, go the second mile also. That admonition is not accidental. It is not incidental. It is not unimportant or insignificant. It is central to the prosperity which historically, generationally, culturally, Western civilization has enjoyed. Believe it or not, that's the fact. Take it to the bank. Capitalism depends on an awareness that men are not angels. They are not inherently good, completely trustworthy. And that's why you can't have one person making all of the decisions for everybody. A central decision maker, a central planner with a five-year plan who you will be able to trust only has the best of intentions isn't entirely altruistic participant in the operation. Capitalism depends on a distrust of people which counterintuitively produces diffusion of responsibility, diffusion of decision-making capabilities. It's only when we start to suppose that man is inherently good and the only thing wrong with him is systems that we move away from people having decentralized decision-making capabilities. Read Carnage and Culture by Victor Davis Hanson and you will find out a whole lot about why consistently the Western world has triumphed in battle and in war against non-Western opponents, non-Western competitors, non-Western enemies. Because on the one hand, you have this, believe it or not, optimistic view, which takes for granted that man is not inherently good. Let me say that again. There's an optimistic view which also believes that man is not inherently good. Now, how is, there this, how is there this optimism if we believe that man is not inherently good? Well, I'll tell you, the way we believe that man is not inherently good and also are optimistic about the future is that we insist that God is good. Let God be true and every man a liar. That tells us that there is such a thing as truth. And moreover, there is a judge. And moreover, there is this idea of the fear of the Lord, which men ought to, not that they do, but they ought to operate in relation to. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's just to get started. And if we have no fear of the Lord, then we cannot be wise. 
So it behooves us as we're interacting with one another to not defraud one another, not only because we expect punishment from human authorities that may or may not be as clever as we are, that may or not they may or may not figure out that the jig is up and what we're up to and punish us before our life is over and concluded and we move on. Then comes the judgment. No, no, believing and fearing God causes us to operate in an attitude of perpetual repentance. As Martin Luther once said, the Christian life is one of continual repentance. So in a capitalist system, opponents to capitalism will frequently say, well, that's not fair. Look at this distribution of wealth. Look at this distribution of resources and of talent. Look at the inequality. Look at the inequity. Men and women, they don't look exactly the same. And then you get a nonsense from this medical journal, Lancet. Famed medical journal calls women, quote, bodies with vaginas. You get this idea that in order to have people be treated fairly, you have to remove and eliminate and refuse stubbornly all distinctions. Men, women, what's the difference? Well, actually, there is a difference, and it's God-given, and it's God-ordained, and we should rejoice in it. We should rejoice in the fact that there is a difference between men and women. And it shouldn't be the kind of rejoicing where you say, ah, this is fantastic that women are so much better than men. This is fantastic that men are so much better than women. No, 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 no. Men and women are different both together made in the image of God. Both made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Bodies with vaginas. I'm sorry. If there are any children listening, I'm sorry. I apologize, but this is the world that we live in. Famed medical journal calls women bodies with vaginas. And so there's this idea that we're just going to reduce people to their parts and any parts which are distinct, separate, unequal as we see it, which have the effect of promoting inequity as we see it, we're going to refuse to acknowledge or we're going to acknowledge in this awkward, weird, mechanical sort of a way because... We're not comfortable with reconciliation. The only terms on which we can conceive of reconciliation are the terms in which everybody has the exact same thing. Well, that's Marxism, ladies and gentlemen. Marxism is predicated on envy, coveting what your neighbor has. He has something that I don't. She has something that I don't. I want it oh so bad, as Project 86 says in their excellent album, Rival Factions, the first track, Evil, A Course of Resistance. You have something I want. I want it oh so bad. Don't move, hand it over. I won't stop till it's in my hands. 
There's this idea that we need to possess everything that everyone around us possesses. And if anybody has something that we don't have, we are entitled to take it away from them, even if we can't possess it ourselves. This gets at a Ten Commandment. The Tenth, to be more specific, precise, what have you. New King James Version, because let's be old school for just a second. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet. You shall not covet. This comes after the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is talking about slander. This is talking about running your neighbor down, trying to destroy his reputation, smearing him, casting aspersions. This comes after the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. The seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. The sixth. You shall not murder. Commandments six through ten are entirely about don't treat the people around you these ways. Do not. And then you fast forward to the New Testament, and Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is another way of saying, when he continues on, these two sum up all the law and the prophets, Verses in Exodus, which talk about not murdering, committing adultery, stealing, bearing false witness, coveting, instruct and are supposed to inform what is and is not loving towards God and our neighbor who is made in God's image. It is not loving towards your neighbor to murder your neighbor. Don't know if you knew that. Pro tip. You love your neighbor, don't murder him. Inside track there. Step one to loving your neighbor, don't murder him. Also, do not commit adultery. You love your neighbor, don't commit adultery. You love your neighbor, do not steal. Don't steal from him. Is that too much to ask? Don't steal your neighbor's stuff if you love him. Oh, and by the way, while we're at it, don't bear false witness against him. Don't be making up stories. Don't be trying to tear him down. And as if these are not a tall enough order, given human proclivities and the sinful nature we're all born with, thanks to our first progenitor, Adam, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Anything. House, wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, anything and yet let's go back to second corinthians 5 where paul writes about this ministry of reconciliation do you know who needs to be reconciled folks who've been sinned against and folks who've done the sinning matthew 18 is all about if your brother sins against you which really should be when your brother sins against you. When your brother sins against you, you go to him privately and you work it out, just the two of you. Matthew chapter 5 similarly talks about if you are giving your offering to the Lord, 
you remember that your brother has aught against you, you stop everything. You leave your offering there. Don't take it away. Don't abort mission. But run to your neighbor, to your brother, to whoever it is that you've sinned against, that you remembered. All of a sudden, God brought it to your remembrance. You know what? You wronged this person, and you should go make it right. You should go and restore this person. This person that you lied about, you should now go and tell the truth about and set the record straight about that person. This person that you hurt, you should try to heal them. This person you stole from, you should give back what it is that you stole. Restore their property to them. Make it right. Who is it that needs reconciled? It's folks who have been sinned against and folks who have done the sinning. And any Christian gospel which can't make sense of doing that is very, very confused indeed about the gospel. The gospel does pertain to righteousness. It does pertain to justice. Yes, absolutely. But it doesn't pertain to righteousness and justice only in the sense that, hey, here's a leftist talking point. We're going to redefine biblical justice to mean the same thing as social justice. And then we're going to insist. We're going to twist your arm. Yes, yes, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, but this will just have to do. We're going to twist your arm and we're going to claim that confiscatory tax rates, crippling, debilitating tax rates are the closest you're going to get to charity, to being a cheerful giver. You have no choice in the matter, so you're really not a giver. The ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5 is predicated on the idea that we needed to be reconciled to God. And there was nothing that God needed to admit wrongdoing in. Hey guys, you know what? We both messed up. I know, I know. I kind of made you in a clunky way and I sort of made you defective. And so it's kind of my fault. No, 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 no. It's on us. We messed up. God's holy, perfect, just, pure, immutable, unchanging, righteous. We are not. It's as simple as that. He doesn't need to admit wrong on his part because he's not wrong. We messed up. And if God in his perfection can still be long-suffering with us and say to us, here's my son in whom I am well pleased and present his only begotten son as propitiation, as payment for our sins, then who are we when we almost always, if not always, bear some responsibility, maybe not all, maybe not even most of the responsibility, but some responsibility in conflict by virtue of being imperfect fallen creatures who have an expectation of being perfected, but have not yet. We're the already and not yet at the same time. We're already perfected. We're already redeemed. We're already the elect. And yet, we have not yet seen the complete fruition of that. We're expecting it. And so when we need reconciliation, because we've sinned against someone, and we don't want to admit that we messed up, well then, what is 
our faith in Christ about. If we say that we have no sin, then we are liars and the truth is not in us. We have sinned against God and our fellow man. And we don't fix that by claiming responsibility for things that actually we did not mess up in. And if we have been following God and people are hating us for it because they hate the truth, their deeds are dark, they hate the light, we do very, very well to not be afraid of man and repent of goodness and righteousness and faithfulness just to get ourselves out of the hot seat. We do very well to not cave in to temptation. But if we have actually sinned against those around us before God, God knows, we do well to own it. And if we're not willing to own it, then what does that say about the condition of our faith in the grace that is promised, that is delivered, signed, sealed, delivered in Christ? What does that say about our confidence in these things? Perhaps we need to do an inventory and look back over how is it that we are relating. Now, to be clear, sometimes people don't want to be reconciled. And when those people who don't want to be reconciled happen to be non-Christians, then that is one matter. That is one thing. And I think, depending on the circumstance, what may be in play is, do not cast your pearls before swine. Do not give the dogs what is holy. But when we are talking about professing Christians and there's an opportunity to be reconciled, if we say, no thanks, I'll pass, are we content to leave unexamined the possibility that Christ will say to us on the last day, depart from me, I never knew you? Does the love of Christ abide in us? Paul writes, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. We groan. We groan. I want to emphasize that. We groan. In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may be not found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. God is the one who has prepared us for this very thing. And he gave us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. What are you afraid of? What am I afraid of? Someone's sinned against us. There's an opportunity for reconciliation. God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, as we read. What then holds us back from being of good courage? Yes, we are of good courage, verse 8 says, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. 
Well, what pleases him? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That pleases God. These two sum up all the law and the prophets. Faith pleases God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is predicated on putting ourselves out there in obedience to he who is faithful. And if we're not willing to do that, we are not of good courage to say it lightly, to put it mildly. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, regard no one. We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, we, he he's a new creation. He's a new creation. Are we a new creation? And if so, there should be evidence of that. There should be proof. There should be some way of determining that. There should be some way of figuring that out. And it shouldn't be a mystery. Take my word for it. If we are a new creation, then verse 18 should apply and it should be evident. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. If reconciliation doesn't get our blood pumping, and yet we claim to be Christians, perhaps we need to double-check our math. Perhaps we need to double-check whether we are persevering or just going through the motions. Have we forgotten that gospel which was first delivered to us as of primary importance? Have we forgotten it? Reconciliation not only should be, it must be central to our understanding of the gospel. It must be. And if it isn't, then what sort of gospel is that? Now, by no means am I suggesting that reconciliation means we become doormats. If someone strikes you on the one cheek, you turn to him the other also. You only have so many cheeks. Just saying. And if there are avenues to appeal Abuse from someone, by all means, explore those avenues. But if someone is contrite, and if it is to be believed that reconciliation could happen, and yet we harden our hearts, then something we see in Second Corinthians deserves our attention. In First Corinthians, you have this case of a man who is unrepentant, and I won't go into the nitty-gritty details in this episode, but you have a man who is unrepentant in his sin. And Paul says, is there not any among you who has wisdom to judge these matters? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more so matters pertaining to this life? And so Paul says that this man who is unrepentant, living in his sin, needs to be expelled. He needs to be ejected. He needs to be removed from fellowship. Because the church in Corinth is not willing to do that. He has to say this. Paul has to say this because they don't think that way. 
They're Greeks. This is Corinth. They have the reputation to uphold. They're permissive. But Paul says to these churches, the standard is not what you're used to. In effect, the same thing that Jesus says. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you, do you not know we are to judge angels? Do you not know? Do you really not know? Have you forgotten? Are you downplaying the significance of this? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more so the matters pertaining to this life? So Paul says to cast this guy out. He's removed from fellowship. And the reason for this is that it would bring him to repentance. By the second epistle to the church in Corinth, this guy has repented. He was thrown out, removed from fellowship. He's repented. He's turned away from his sin. But the church in Corinth is not quite ready to receive him back. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, receive him back. Welcome him back. If he's repentant, welcome him back. And if we're not ready to do that, and we don't understand the need to do that, it is wise for us to refresh our understanding if we have understood ever the gospel. Reconciliation is not optional. It's necessary, particularly when the other person is repentant. Now, sometimes you have to weigh and measure in order to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. This person has sinned against me. They're saying they're repentant. Are they really? Or is this just a ruse to get into my confidence again so they can hurt me again and worse this time? But again, look at Christ. Look at the example of Christ. How far do we go with that self-protectiveness? Truthfully, and I'm not saying this from an ivory tower. I'm saying this as somebody who's been hurt, who's been wounded, who's been disappointed, who's been betrayed, who's felt shocked because people I knew, I thought, would have my back, and they didn't. And yet, we have to reckon with this if we're Christians. We have to reckon with this. It's not optional. It's necessary. It comes with the territory. And if we don't, well then, how can we say that the love of Christ abides in us? Have we received that gospel which saves? Or is it a false gospel which makes us feel very self-righteous? Which gives entrance to social clubs which are important to us? Some thoughts to consider. I think we should meditate on this idea of the ministry of reconciliation. I think we should be intentional about it. I think that we should consider it from a personal application standpoint, from our own personal attitude standpoint, from what we encourage in others. I think that we should embrace this. We should lean into it. But I got to run. It is late enough. It is 8.30 now, 8.30 p.m. Oh, by the way, sounds like I've got my schedule back, at least for a time and a season. God willing, we live and do this or that. But I will try to make the most of the fact that I have my schedule back again. I can go in a little bit later, which means I can create some content before I go to work. 
God willing, we live and do this or that. But I am relieved to hear that. And I think I will sleep better tonight. And I think I will go to work with a bit more of a spring in my step tomorrow. You can pray for me that I continue to stay the course insofar as I have. Or I do a better job of staying the course in the future. Being blameless. I need to be a part of this ministry of reconciliation. So do you. We have the great privilege, and it's not an obligation, it's not a burden. God reconciled us to himself in Christ, through Christ. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. But i got to leave it there. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.